This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello. Hi, Adam. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm Ben. Hey, Ben. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Nice to e-meet you. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I listened to a couple of the back episodes there, oh. so. Oh, cool. You know, know a little bit about you, but uh, certainly hope we uh, get the opportunity to talk more. Yeah, totally. I, I think we will. I, th- I think that's the point, actually. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting in the Info for Guests document was sort of the the idea of the uh, sort of treating it as more of a sort of co-hosting versus um, uh, maybe a traditional interview, Yep. Um, which I certainly like the idea of. I Great. consumed a lot of podcasts over the years uh, and there's actually one in particular that just had an episode where they talked about that exact thing they called it the two dudes talking genre of podcasts uh-huh which yeah is basically all about the back and forth and the banter and it's just so much more interesting to listen to um, but it often the best ones often depend on people that have sort of a, a good natural a rapport probably you know knew each other from other some other thing in in uh, their work life or personal life yeah totally it's cool that you're up for that because a lot of people are, are more comfortable with like just a one-way kind of thing yeah like i ask a question you talk for 60 seconds and then we repeat <laughs> right yeah well, so one of the things I was going to ask you is whether, uh, yeah, ideally, if you get into an interesting topic, then it just turns into a natural back and forth flow. But then there's also, uh, again, because we don't necessarily know each other, know what our interests are, like, basically, I could ask you questions, but I don't know if that would be weird in the format. No, you, you should you should feel free. Got it. Yeah, well, one area that I think would be an obvious one to touch on, I don't know if you had something in mind as far as where to take the topics, but um, the whole realm of programming Literacy and people learning to program is something mm. that's kind of of interest to me, and obviously your work on uh, the the, uh, the Thoughtbot uh, Learn stuff might be I don't know might be related to that. So maybe there's some some areas there we could get into. Yeah, totally. That'd be pretty cool. So you you had a pretty wild run with uh, Heroku. Started with such a tiny team and grew it into such a huge thing. And over the years, what was that like? Yeah, it was an amazing experience. Lots of ups and downs. Mm-hmm. The emotional roller coaster of entrepreneurship is only amplified greatly the more success you have sort of the more the more intense the highs and the more intense the lows uh, but uh, if you've got a, a great team to do it with then even the tough times can be rewarding mm-hmm. you have a post that i really like that you wrote about uh, scaling a development team yeah that one remains one of the ones i probably get the most contact about these days i think maybe because it's such a mystery so you start out building something and it's you and a couple other people. And maybe if you're used to building hobby projects or working on small teams, it's pretty straightforward how you get stuff done. You kind of just get in a room and do it. Mm-hmm. But then as you get into something that's bigger than what an individual or a couple of people can do, you need sort of more organization. And it's sort of this huge mystery about how you go from yeah, a couple of guys that are making a thing to high-functioning engineering organization. Mm-hmm. And then the folks that sort of figure it out by trial and error – uh, regrettably don't often go on to sort of like write books about it or whatever. There's a few. So I just sort of felt compelled to write down our experience. And yeah, it seems like it, it struck a chord because I get emails from people all the time basically saying, oh, we're going through that exact thing. Can you, yeah. can you help us out? So you, you have some warnings in there. Like for instance, when you say when you get to like five to nine developers, be careful about adding too much process. Like it feels like, oh, like we're a real company now and we got to do some real serious process with a capital P. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm all about like right sizing. That's sort of that that lean concept, which is like you want the right size for what you need, right? And if you think about 
you, know, you could make a metaphor to something like, uh, you know, a home, for example. You know, if you're a single person, a giant home with four bedrooms doesn't make sense. On the other hand, if you're a big family with, you know, a bunch of kids and grandma and that sort of thing, then, you know, a little place that's the right size for a single person would be would be inappropriate. And it's really the same thing with, yeah, process and organizational stuff, everything from tracking tools, you know, whether you're and people can get really into the pivotal tracker versus Trello versus a physical board on the wall versus, no, I want to use text files and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's some good debates to be had there. But one of the most important pieces of context is how big are you at, or sort of what stage are you at? And therefore, that helps determine what's appropriate. And what's appropriate at one stage is not appropriate at another. Sure. Yeah. Another thing that, that struck me was that you have this sentence that says almost all of Heroku's teams have two developers. And that uh, that's familiar because that tends to be what happens at ThoughtBot here. Like one is too lonely and three, you start to three to five, you start to maybe step on each other's toes or it becomes communication becomes tough. But two is kind of like a really, a really nice spot to be in. Yeah, I think, of course, it also depends how you define team, but, but especially if you're talking about like a sort of a group of people doing product development and, you know, maybe for a particular feature, either a somewhat, somewhat temporary team or, or something longer term, like with client work, mm -hmm. sort of the duration of a, of a project. I think yeah, two engineers and a designer and maybe a product manager or like a, a general sort of manager that sort of leads the, the whole process seems to be sort of a good size. Yeah, you get kind of the benefits of that small team thing where you can kind of sit in a room and high bandwidth communication and you don't need a lot of bureaucracy or red tape to sort of keep track of everything that's in flight. Uh, but you have enough people and enough skills to spread out the work and get get a lot done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear how you uh, how you do things for ThoughtBot and especially client work is a bit different from product work. I've, I've done a fair bit of that in the past myself. So how do you, yeah, how do you decide who's going to be on a, uh, on a team for a particular project and what's the like duration yeah we we try to be fairly generalists i guess so that we have people i wouldn't say people are interchangeable uh because if there's a project where you need a lot of experience in a particular technology we do require a particular person uh but on average we shoot for like two developers a designer and then the client is more or less the product manager or we might have an advisor or we usually have an advisor that's sort of acting as kind of half product manager uh for that and that that team size has worked really well for us we really like that that, like we find that design is able to stay at pace with development and communication is not a problem and it's been we've been successful with that mm. and is that what's the like time frame that ends up going with uh with a, with a team like that is that based around what the client wants or do you find that there's like a good sort of duration for projects the client usually wants more than what we recommend so a lot of our clients are people that have just gotten funding uh, and want to build an mvp or have like just enough money for an mvp uh, and our definition of MVP tends to be much smaller than their definition because uh, they have this, this sort of uh, a large vision of what they want to eventually be. And so we found that a lot of our work is kind of pushing back and paring down and saying, what, what, what's really the smallest thing we can build? Um, and so people often want to do an engagement that's longer than we recommend at first. So we'll say, like, OK, let's, let's pull this back and let's, what can we do in six weeks uh, or eight weeks that's going to let you really test whether or not this thing has legs? And then when that, if it works or if, if it works, basically, then we will say, OK, let's do more work. You know, we've we found something. We think there is there's potential here. Money's still there. Let's let's keep going. Yeah, I think with with durations, six to eight weeks sounds good to me. Yeah, I like things that are in the sort of month to quarter duration. Longer than that, and it starts to seem like you've got all the time in the world, and it just sort of stretches on, and the the end isn't in sight. So you don't have this sort of urgency that I think really drives building great things and drives creativity. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, you make it too small and then sort of too iterative and uh, you don't feel like you can achieve something big. And especially if 
Uh, I don't know if you guys use the breaks in, but uh, sort of when you hit the natural uh, milestones, that that's the moment where you might shuffle the team members so that people can do new things and move around. But like, yeah, if you're shuffling every two weeks, like you just don't have enough, uh, the continuous knowledge that comes from working on a project and with the same group of people for a while. Yeah, true. The most demoralizing things I've been on have been when we, we have this thing where we can't release it for a long, long time. And like, it just, it's taking longer than expected and we can't get feedback on it and we're working in a vacuum. Yeah. And, you know, that's the way most software was built in the world for decades. And right. It was it was awful. I mean, I uh, I'm, I'm probably a bit older than uh, than some of the folks that are in the startup world. And so when I got into software development, yeah, it was very common, you know, what we might call waterfall now. But then it would you just you spent years working on something. Eventually it turned, went onto a floppy disk and went into a store and maybe a user got it at some point and maybe mm-hmm. you heard about whether they liked it or not and if you were lucky they did and then maybe you'd build a version two. Mm-hmm. But that feedback loop was just so incredibly long. Uh, and actually the very first place where I was um, sort of doing professional work was in video games. And yeah, it's obviously a different kind of product and of course there was play testing and stuff like that but um, everything was in these yeah, extremely long cycles and didn't even realize it. I think the people in the industry then and, and even myself, I didn't even realize what was missing. But then when I went into an environment doing web development where I had this, I could make a change, push it out, get feedback about it right away and then iterate. And it was just suddenly this incredibly liberating and exhilarating experience compared to what I've been doing before. Totally. I think of this, there's this uh, Joel Spolsky post called, uh, that says, uh, good software takes 10 years. And he wrote this back in 2001. And I think when you're, you know, when you're doing this method where it takes a huge amount of time to get feedback on what you've done, it does take 10 years. But if you can shorten that feedback loop, you can do it faster. For sure. Yeah. Now, I do think there's another way to put it might be that um, good and mature products take a long time. Like you could build something that's great. And I think a lot of, yeah, hot young startups that have made things that seem to have struck a chord with people or found a good fit with a market but there's this whole process of how you turn that into something from like the hot new thing that's sort of a novelty that people really like the idea of but taking that and turning it into a thing you can rely on every day in your life and there's just so many things beyond the initial creation whether you talk about localization or payments or scaling up the infrastructure security privacy all of that kind of thing and you look at especially companies, you know, that went through that massive growth phase and, you know, sometimes for a long time, um, Twitter was probably a good example. Heroku had its own phase that was like this. There was a period of like a year and a half where we really couldn't do anything new because we were just trying to keep up with growth and we were just trying to turn it from this sort of uh, relatively early and, you know, people could see the concept and it was great for hobby apps, but turning it into something like a real tool you could depend on for yeah. production applications. And it was just shocking the amount of work that went into that relative to uh, what went into the kind of the initial gestation, uh, finding the right idea, you might put it. Yeah. And that, that work can be so frustrating because like you have all these new things you want to do, but you just kind of have to shore up defenses and get things solid and make the foundation solid. Yeah. Shore, shoring up is a good way to put it. Yeah. All of these things that start to matter yeah, like dealing with abuse is a really good example. Mm. I've seen a number of companies go through this, and at some point they end up having to form a, like a trust and safety division, usually that does nothing but worry about whether it's denial of service attacks or spam 
or um, fraud attempts or other things like that. Um, and it's one of those things you just don't think about at all when you're sort of a starry-eyed entrepreneur. Just You're thinking about the positive things that can be done with your product. Uh, but then once you get successful enough, you're going to have to deal with the, the less pleasant elements of, uh, of the internet out there. And it's amazing. You know, There's whole departments that are bigger than some startups I know just dealing with that for those fast-growing products. And it's just one of those things that goes with having a, a mature product. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what it takes to get to that maturity. Like a, we were working on this code review tool, basically, and we did a, a, a sprint where we hacked out a prototype that was, you know, very, very faked. Basically, we faked out some stuff and, and hacked it together and, and showed it to some people. And people are like, "This is great! Yeah, I want this." And then we're like, "Okay, so let's build this for real." And we, we built the prototype in like a day or two. And turning it into like a real thing that actually works consistently and you know doesn't have a lot of bugs has is, has been a couple months now. And I'd still say we're in that like shoring up phase very much. And it's like we, we had this thing in like a day that like looks complete, but, you know, behind the scenes, everything was incredibly incomplete. And getting that to the actual completeness is, is surprisingly challenging. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm a huge fan of the super lightweight prototyping that it's possible to do now, uh, especially when you combine it with really aggressive user testing early on, because what you can do is test out a bunch of ideas. You don't need to invest all of that engineering and other mm. effort that goes into yeah, making a mature product, whether it be months or, or years of work, you be, and then have it turn out that, hey, your original idea, no one actually wants this thing. And there's a million, million stories uh, like that of people that, yeah, spend years working on a thing that it turns out that there's no market for mm-hmm. because, of, of course, they want it to be good. But basically making it good in the sense of, you know, a real a product, a mature product shored up, like you said, that actually is sort of step two. The first step is sort of validating that your hypothesis for what you're creating is useful to someone, yeah. that that's correct at all. And usually that involves doing a bunch of experiments and trying a bunch of things and uh, pretty wild variations. Uh, and if you can build all those really cheaply and lightly in a, yeah, in a day or two or whatever, try them out, most of them you'll throw away and you never need to invest that effort. But then you find that one that really strikes the chord and finds that fit with the market. And then you can go invest all that effort. Now you've found the right, the right thing. Yeah. So are you in, are you in Berlin right now? That's right. Yeah, after uh, six wonderful years at Heroku, I made the uh, the difficult decision to to move on and and seek new things uh, last summer, and so kind of was in vacation mode for a little while, kind of recovering from the adrenaline rush that necessarily goes with uh, being part of a, a venture like that. But mm-hmm. um, then when I was feeling sort of ready to get back in the game, but uh, my partners and I weren't quite ready to start a new business yet. So we just, I decided to kind of both indulge my desire to live abroad, which is something I've always wanted to do and never quite had the chance for, and go check out the startup scene over here, which which I heard was, was pretty amazing. Of course, SoundCloud is kind of a poster child for Berlin startup scene, but there's also some other, uh, some other really awesome ones. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of combined those, came over over, looked for some short-term contracts and some advising uh, type stuff, which turned out to be relatively available. And um, yeah, it worked out so well, I decided to, to stay a little longer. So uh, here for, for a little while, most of the rest of the year probably, and um, working with some of the awesome companies that I met while I visited the first time around. That's cool. What's the vibe like? I love that it feels kind of small and family-like again. Mm. And, and by again, I guess I, what I mean is that when we moved to San Francisco in 2007 to join Y Combinator and start Heroku, at the time, I mean, I guess I don't need to imply Silicon Valley was a small place, but for whatever reason, maybe it was the YC circle in particular, maybe it was the Ruby community being so small and tight-knit, or maybe it was tech entrepreneurship in general was... Uh, really um, just felt like a, a, a very tight-knit group of people and mm-hmm. sort of like, well, welcome to the club sort of thing. 
And then kind of more in more recent times with, you know, I'm so happy for the tech boom and all the opportunity that's created and the great companies and products that are being built and, of course, the economic growth. But it doesn't feel that way anymore. You show up. It, it reminds me more of when I lived in Los Angeles and someone show up from some small town saying, hey, I want to be an actor. I've come to the Hollywood to make my fortune. And sort of like the response wasn't like, hey, welcome. It was more like get in line. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I kind of get a little, you don't quite have that family vibe anymore. Um, so that's what I was sort of looking for. So interestingly, I would say that right now Berlin reminds me more of San Francisco seven or eight years ago than San Francisco does right now. So really enjoying that aspect of things. Hmm. Interesting. One of the things that I've, I've heard is it's, it's a lot easier to get a visa to work from outside of Germany to go work in Berlin. Uh, so a lot of people are sort of heading in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the, um, I like the, I mean, there's, you know, government bureaucracy, of course, but it's much more, if you can just prove that someone wants to hire you and you go show up at a government office, they pretty much say, welcome to the country, or at least, nice. you know, uh, at least uh, on a, on a temporary basis. And I have hired people from all over the world uh, and worked uh, in part of my work at Heroku and some other companies where I was dealing with getting them visas into the U.S., and that can be a huge hassle, uh, very stressful for the people, very difficult and costly for the company. Uh, of course, it boggles my mind that you would want to stop someone from coming to the local economy to contribute to it. And of course, if we can't get them to move here, we hire them as remote contractors. So either way, the company is employing them. It's just in one way they, their money goes into the, the economy wherever they're living, whereas if we can get them to come to the U.S., then they're actually a you know, participating member in the U.S. economy. So it's, it's a little funny to me the way that that stuff works. But yeah, I think the immigration law is quite a bit saner here. And the fact that you can tap the talent pool for the entire European Union, mm. those folks don't even need visas, means you have this huge pool of talent, which is a really refreshing change from the, the challenges uh, trying, to, trying to put a team together in, in San Francisco. And you get these super international teams with all these interesting accents and stuff, which I find really fun. Yeah, and probably diversity of opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the things I sort of went looking for was not just indulging this desire to get out to see the world, but also kind of breaking out of my Silicon Valley bubble a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, I, I love it there, but I, I think there's this natural thing where you're surrounded by folks that are culturally similar and you see the same kind of problems and you think about the world in the same kind of ways and coming someplace where obviously people still very much have a startup mindset and there's, you know, people use all the same tools and have all the same developer sort of culture that, that you would expect um, uh, I think it, that you see anywhere in the world, but yes, come from these different cultural backgrounds and I think are more likely to see things maybe in a, in a different way. I'm finding that, that mind expanding for sure. Hmm. What was it like to leave Haruku? Ooh, yeah. One of the hardest things I've ever done for sure. Hmm. I mean, you know, I've, uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur, done a bunch of ventures. You know, many of them have kind of petered out. Some have been outright failures. Um, others have been moderate successes, but in, in every case, I think, you know, it's nothing near the level of success, um, happiness that it, and sat personal satisfaction that it brought me, the, the level, even just the association with your, your identity, right? Like Heroku was me and I, I was it mm -hmm. in, in some sense. And that was true for, I think, everyone, everyone there. So, yeah, when I kind of realized that I had said the things that I wanted to say creatively, in terms of, in particularly when we shipped Cedar, the, the multi-language or what I call the polyglot platform and a bunch of the things that went with that, how the logging worked, how the error handling worked, how the, how the console attachment worked, the build packs, all of that stuff kind of, for me, was the fruition of a vision I'd had for a long time. And I sort of realized I didn't have a, a lot more to say past that. And so 
But then you have this deep attachment to the product, to the brand, and then most of all the people. I mean, just this amazing team of people uh, that came together that I just learned so much from and saying, okay, guys, you know, it's time for me to, to go my other way uh, or go on to find a new path was, was very challenging. But I guess I wanted to do it kind of swiftly and cleanly rather than sort of, sort of linger if I didn't have, feel like I had as much to contribute mm. just because I had this attachment, attachment to the past. But it'll always be my baby. I'll always be uh, very, uh, very emotionally entangled in, in uh, what all they do. And, and I just continue to watch and, and cheer from the sidelines now. Mm. Was it really difficult for you to be the CTO of something that went from something so small to something so large? I mean, that's like such a different job, I have to imagine. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the deal with with fast growth companies is that not only does the company environment change, you know, essentially, it's a whole new company every year. But it means that you people that are there a long time, they essentially have a new job uh, every, uh, you know, six months to a year, depending on on the rate of growth. And for me, yeah, there was various breakpoints in terms of, for example, there was a point at which I couldn't be involved in writing code anymore day to day, or rather I had to say I had the choice, right? I had the choice between being able to pop up a layer and, and continue to sort of manage and lead sort of the, the whole engineering team. But to do that effectively, it was not a good use of my, my time to, to be writing code anymore, but I love programming. So that was, that was a tough one. And then, mm. and then it was even more, then we had this next layer where there was sort of people that I had managed that then they sort of graduated to this point of yeah, whether they were going into being a tech lead or sort of looking into the people management side of things. And they would sort of then go down that, I would watch them go down that same emotional path of like, well, wait, I see that how I can best contribute to the team here is to lead the team or to manage people or to, you know, to hire, to, to organize, to, to inspire people. But then I won't be writing code. And my programmer brain says that when you're not coding, it's not real work that like meetings and talking to people and that sort of thing doesn't count as work. And so you have to kind of like re and so I <laughs> watched others go through, go through the same process. So every, everyone that's an early employee at a, at a company need, has to either make that choice. They have to grow in some direction or they have to specialize more deeply. Or in some cases, people that you know, work early on, they, they just decide, okay, I enjoyed working at a company that was 20 people, but the things that are required of me and when the company is 200 people aren't really a fit for how I want to work anymore. Mm -hmm. Was it hard for you to give up that stuff? I mean, were you like, did you resist it or you just said, this is, this is what's best for the company, so I'm going to do that? Yeah, no, it was it was a process. That's the way I would the way I would put it. Um, yeah, I think you know it was sort of the cognitive dissonance maybe of reconciling what I could see was most valuable, and then you know uh, you know where again like sort of that point of view where going to meetings or helping someone be successful. I didn't kind of think of that as real work. It was just something I squeezed right. in or did on the side. But then I would go and help someone new to the company come on board and understand the code base and help them be successful. And then I would see how you know that got just huge multiplier effects for the team. And it was really satisfying for me. And it was great to watch them do it. And then I would kind of have to resolve this like, okay, well, wait. I see that what I'm doing here seems, seems actually not only valuable but more valuable than me writing code. And yet there's some part of me that believes that that's that's real work. Totally. Right? So, I wonder if that's unique to programmers. I've even struggled this on like I've been started uh, running a team recently and like I have days where like it's I have a number of meetings and phone calls and things like that and it's like oh I didn't do any work today. Um, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> of course. Yeah, and being the interrupt driven on manager time. I'd love to hear about that how uh, how big is the team? Uh it's about 5ish. 5ish. Okay. Yep. So that's big enough. 
because one thing is you can sort of run a team in like a tech lead, project lead kind of thing, but still be pretty active code-wise. Mm -hmm. If it's like a three-person team, you get to five, now you're starting to get close to a breakpoint where it's just, you know, you just basically, it's actually irresponsible probably of you to be doing too much coding because uh, that means you're not fulfilling other responsibilities that the team is counting on you for. Yeah. So is that, how do you how do you balance your time that way? It's hard. I, I definitely, I still struggle with it. It's like, I feel like I'm being really productive when I am coding. And like, this has been, that's been true for like the last six years of my career. I'm starting now to get, get a handle on it where like I've had a morning where like I wrote code all morning and then I stop back and say, okay, well this, as far as like utility of this feature and things I could have been doing with other people and, and the broad vision of this as a business, maybe that was not the best use of time. And so I'm, I'm starting to get a, a grip on it and starting to realize like a, there are things that are work that are worth doing that are not coding. I think there's like almost like a programmer mentality of like anyone that's not coding is soft or is like, you know, an overhead or something. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting past that. Yeah, and I think that point of view, and certainly I, I've been there, I think that point of view not only holds back people whose core skill is programming or engineering, not only does it potentially hold them back from dis discovering new ways that they can be helpful to their team, uh, but it can sometimes uh, show up in the form of maybe sort of a mild disrespect for mm -hmm. people that have what you might call softer skills. So like, yeah, sales might be a good example of one that maybe I often see doesn't get a ton of respect from engineering people, but they're so important for making, you know, companies that do any kind of enterprise business. And the difference between a great sales team and a, and a crappy one is like you have a job or you don't. Mm. Um, and, and it's a very specific skill set and people work their whole careers to build it out and it takes a certain kind of personality. And yet, yeah, there's this sense that like, yeah, code is like the center of everything. And, and, mm -hmm. and the further you are from that, sort of the less, maybe the less worthy you are of respect or the less value you provide to the organization. Uh, and that gets in the way of both individual career development of engineers, but also the ability to respect and understand what your non-programmer colleagues do and why their work is important. Yeah, and I think it also, programming is definitely kind of a superpower to me, but you can you can amplify your impact on things when you get over that idea that managing people is, is like not as good or something as programming. Uh, that's really well said, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing skill. It's very important, and it, uh, there's a good reason why uh, good engineers command quite premium salaries relative to their experience, and yet it is just one of many skills that is necessary to make an organization that is successfully building a great product or serving its, its customers in some way. Hmm. Have you read a book called The E-Myth? I don't think I've read that one. The gist is sort of, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to work on your business, not in your business. So if you are a, if you make pies, if you're like a pie selling business, if you are back there making the pies, then you're working in the business as opposed to creating a systematic way of making pies, having someone else make the pies. You think about the strategy of your pie business and how to market it and how to sell it and where the store should be and all that. And you work on the business itself. And they think of it as like an important transition for people to make away from sort of a solo entrepreneurship. You're, this is kind of just you making pies versus like you are a chain of pie stores or, you know, at least one very successful pie store or something like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I even know no small business owners that have gone through that transition. Like they're a, they're an amazing creator of some kind, whether mm -hmm. they be a hairdresser or a pie baker, 
uh, or, or, or a chef or something. It, yeah, finding a way to kind of multiply that out, scale it out, if you like, is a whole other skill set. And, and yeah, that is entrepreneurship for sure. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I haven't read that one, but that very much aligns with, with my own thinking as well. And it's something, it's the kind of work that a lot of people are, are drawn to. I love doing that sort of thing. Uh, others not. Now, I will say there's the counterpoint there a little bit is the scaling or the making something systematic, uh, finding the patterns and, and scaling it out. I think the best way to know the right thing to do on that is to go do the work yourself for a little while. Mm, oh, so yeah. you, I think you do need to know how to make pies and you do have to have made pies and in particular done it on the front lines of the business uh, for a little while so that you know what's needed. But if you do that forever, yeah, which you can, but then now you're talking about something that's more of a service business rather than a, a scalable, like a product or a, or a scalable business. Yeah, and, and you have a job instead of a, a company. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the art of entrepreneurship is such a sort of hard to define thing. I, I often talk about sort of the idea of basically trying to find ways to move resources from lower value uses to higher value uses. Mm. And when you think of, the other kind of work there is to do, I guess you'd say in business, is what you might call operational, which is continuing something that already exists. Mm. And maybe there's growth associated with that and so forth, but it's it's sort of largely a known quantity. And the entrepreneurship side is really going off into the uh, onto a path that is unknown and which may actually have nothing that's valuable that's on it, which is part of the risk that goes with it, but basically staking out something something brand new. Of course, both are extremely important, and mm -hmm. actually, you probably need a way higher proportion of people in the, the operational category than our entrepreneurial category in the for the world to, to function well. Uh, but I think I think both are good. Mm. Yeah, agreed. So, what is your morning routine? Hmm, it's been all over the place since I've been sort of in uh, vacation mode a little bit, which is nice after many many years of being on a pretty direct track. These days, though, I've um, on a on a contract with a, a company here in Berlin called Clue, and they've got offices in Kreuzberg, which is kind of the the neighborhood where most startups tend to tend to be based around here. And it's a great city for biking. I never did much biking in San Francisco because the confusing streets and hills make it not a so friendly a place for that. So, yeah, it's pretty much as simple as uh, getting up. Uh, of course, the latitude here is high enough that we're in the time of year where uh, the sun comes up at 4 in the morning and stays up until 1030 or 11 at night. Mm. So the sun's already well up by the, by the time I'm up. Which Ride is, my... when, when do you get up? Uh, let's see, I'm probably doing, uh, 8.30ish these days, which from my point of view is pretty early, but the, yeah, the angle of the sun coming in through the, through the windows is confusing to my yeah. California, uh, point of view where I've always lived in these latitudes where the day length doesn't change that much. And it's, it's quite confusing to the sort of your sense of time to have the days be so long. Kind of fun though. It actually, it sort of feels like you get you have more time or you get more done, because right. you, which doesn't really make any sense. You still have a limited amount of time and energy in each day, but it but it feels that way because of the longer daylight hours. Yeah, sure. And then so that's what you're up, and then then what? Yeah, well then it's on my bike and uh, down through the, the center of uh, the city, the sort of famous icon for the city, which is the Fernsehturm, which is just German for TV tower, and then sort of through there and over to Kreuzberg, uh, where the Clue offices are, and go in, and we've got a 10 a.m. stand-up. Mm. Do you eat before that? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm definitely a breakfast, most important <laughs> meal of the, uh, of the day kind of guy. I'm not a, uh, you know, just drink some coffee and have an empty stomach for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. But I'm very much, when it comes to sort of health uh, things, whether it's sleep, 
food, uh, hydration, that kind of stuff. I sort of have this very mechanical, maybe engineering centric view of the body. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm driving around in this meat machine and in order to get maximum efficiency of this machine, which I'm relying on to do the things I want to do in my life, I need to kind of take really good, really good care of it. And mm. so injecting food at the proper moments, whether or not it's convenient or whether or not I feel like uh, eating at a given moment uh, and trying to get the right blend of nutrients and, and so on is something that I, I find makes a huge difference for yeah, me being effective at the things I like to do. But of course, that very sort of like yeah, engineering slash robotic point of view on things ends up being a source of much hilarity to my friends and so forth who, you know, see it, food is more of a central pleasure and, and something you want to do because it's fun to eat and I'm treating it as this, um, you know, I need to, need to fuel up the tank. Yeah. Isn't it a pain that our brains are stuck in these uh, rotting meat <laughs> that have all these problems yeah. and need to be maintained and all that it, indeed although you got to admit they're pretty amazing machines I think oh for they're sure better, they're more they're more advanced and impressive technology than anything i've ever engin engineered that's for sure yeah but they but there are definitely downsides yeah. I, i'm still kind of annoyed though that we just can't upload our brains to you know an internet and back it up somewhere or something like that it's probably coming coming soon enough um the uh you know like a lot of Probably folks uh, in our line of work, I'm definitely a sci-fi reader, and mm -hmm. I was like the version of the future that's presented in, I think it was Cory Doctorow's first book, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, I think it was the title. Mm -hmm. But there was, yeah, very near future, and it was not too different from, from now, but it did have this sort of this backup, you know, cloud backup of your brain mm -hmm. thing that, that happened periodically. And I kind of read it and sort of had that feeling of like, oh, yeah, this makes perfect sense. This is, this is going to happen. Got to do it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, what's your approach to sort of uh, taking care of the needs of the meat meat machine? Uh, I, I cheat a little bit by being able to walk to work, which is nice. So I get like I have this like baseline exercise up over a hill and down, which is is nice. I also bike a, a decent amount. I think of it the same way. Like I, I think of exercise as basically mechanical happiness production. Mm -hmm. It's basically like I I just sort of check in on my mood, and it's like when I feel bad, it means I need to exercise, and that's pretty much my my barometer. That's a good insight. Yeah, I was always blown away by the uh, difference in yeah when I when I had even a very basic way to get exercise, whether it be a bike ride or a trip to the gym or whatever. Uh, it makes a world of difference for your energy and and capabilities the rest of the day. So even yeah, I discovered that pretty young. I think so. I probably would have been inclined to be a spend twelve to fourteen hours a day in my dark cave in front of my computer through like my teens and 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 college years. But at some point, I figured that out that I could just do so much more if I just injected just a little bit of exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's good for you, and it's uh, it's and it's good for the long term as well. But my initial motivation was largely all around. Hmm. I have noted empirically that this machine is more efficient uh, when I take this certain action, and I don't really know why, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to fit it in every day. Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a pretty engineering, pretty programmery, right there. For sure. Yeah. Now, when you're uh, when you're leading a team, the the health and well-being thing also, I think, very much comes into that. Like one of the interesting challenges of people management and, and leadership to me is like it's not just about like what's the thing you're building and how do you get it done and what are the tasks and so forth, but is really about the acknowledgement of the fact that the way things get done is by people and people have all of these, you know, people have feeling, they have their emotions and they have their health and how that affects things and everything like you know, sleep and how many hours a day you work and all of those things very much affect the 
sort of success and productivity of any given team mm. now that you're dipping your toes a little bit into the sort of leadership or management aspects of things do you find yourself i don't know advising people to uh you know not stay at the office so late so that they get more sleep or you know kind of to trying to detect people's um sort of how their how their meat machines are working and hmm. then you know on one hand is a very personal thing but on the other hand if your job is to try to help people be as effective as they can be it, it's a natural thing to kind of speak to that a little bit yeah i'm actually really fortunate in that i get a lot of that for free because it's sort of part of the culture here uh, i didn't invent it i just sort of inherited it but we're like really very serious about sustainable pace so it's like a 40-hour work week pretty seriously enforced like no one act like it, it's it's a real thing people go home when they're supposed to go home and don't do work on the weekends and i think that helps a lot that's sort of that basic culture there and we also do things like the, almost the whole office will take a walk at three o'clock every day and like get away from the computer walk around in this park near the office we have a couple things like that that are just sort of built in pressure release valves and you know sustainable pace enforcement more or less i didn't invent but i, I think go a really long way to to helping the the meat machine stay in good shape. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I'm I'm huge on the sustainable pace. I do not think that you get more working longer hours. You know, there's occasions where you can do some burst work for a particular thing, but for the most part, working longer hours does not actually produce better results. In fact, if anything, the opposite. Sort of subscribe to that idea that creative work really depends a lot on things that happen in your subconscious while you're not working directly on it, and you can't make that go any faster. In fact, you you interfere with that process when you're spending too much time, yeah, at the desk or looking at the task, yeah, task directly. Yeah, that was another one of my things. I I bought a ping pong table for the office just like because I was like, this is a great way to step away from things, to do a social thing, to do a slightly active thing, and uh, have that time to let your brain kind of percolate on something. So I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in that. Yeah, a few years back, uh, I uh, had a little RSI issues going on, and basically the advice, you know, ended up being, yeah, here's some stretches or whatever. But one of the things was just the take breaks thing. Uh, definitely, I was inclined towards pretty long stretches early in my career, and what I was astonished by was it, it definitely it helped. It basically almost completely cleared up the problem, so that was good. But then I also discovered that it actually made my work better to be like taking this 10 minute break once an hour and yeah, getting up and taking a walk and whatever, like changing the environment, activating the new neurons with a little bit of change in the, in the scenery, mm -hmm. uh, the physical activity, all that kind of thing that just kind of shuffles things around in a way that seems at least to me to be really good for creativity. So I actually still have that habit, which is probably good for long-term health, but mostly because I just know that that's where a lot of my insights come through. It's just so much easier to kind of clear out and see what's important when you when you step away just a little bit from the from the shuffle mm. when you do want to get in that focused mindset how do you have a routine for getting in the zone yeah let's see i mean getting into the zone yeah and of course as you're probably learning now with the sort of the leadership management thing there's there sort of is the maker time manager time thing where you know sometimes you just need to be interrupt driven you've got a bunch of meetings you need to be there for your team you need to be on calls that's just how it's going to go. And you're not going to get into the zone then and you shouldn't try because it'll be a frustrating activity. But you also need to block off time for, all right, I'm going to disconnect. I'm going to go away from things a little bit and be able to, because I really need to write this document or write this blog post or some other thing that, that you're working on. So in that case, yeah, usually the main thing is finding a quiet environment away from the usual stuff 
turning off various kinds of notifications so that you can't be interrupted. Uh, obviously, focus-inducing drugs, uh, caffeine uh, being the main one, mm-hmm. is is very useful there. But yeah, I think you, you can't force it necessarily. I like to fill my head with a problem. Yeah, writing is probably one of the main things where I need zone stuff now. Mm-hmm. So if I write a write a blog post or a medium post, trying to start early in the day before you've got a bunch of things that are on your mind, not connecting to email and notifications and so forth. Get that cup of coffee and then sit down and just see if you can see if you can fill that blank page with something useful. And frankly, you can't always. And then in that case, I give up and go do something else. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's really all about clearing out the the little distractions and the little things that end up taking up your your attention and and sort of creating the emotional worry about oh I need to take some action on this rather than just focusing on what's in front of you. Mm. Makes sense. I think that actually that's a really great place to wrap up. Uh, it's been awesome talking to you. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for having me. I liked hearing about uh, how, you, how you're doing things at uh, ThoughtBot. Been a fan for a long time. Oh, thanks very much. Appreciate that. And, and we're, we're huge Heroku fans. We run all our apps on Heroku. So uh, excellent work there. And thanks for... As you should. Yeah. Th- <laughs> thanks for letting us not ever need to do uh, server maintenance. Well, it's uh, it's precisely why we uh, why we started it in the first place is uh, getting so annoyed at setting up servers and just yep. thinking I never want to do this again. And uh, so glad we could make that come true for you guys. Awesome. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giant robots slash 104. Thanks for listening.